0: Welcome to Business Books and Company, Season 3. We're back. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. It's about the journey of grit, resilience, and unbridled optimism that turned a scrappy startup into the premier space company of the 21st century. Author Eric Berger utilized full access at SpaceX to get the inside story from employees and Elon Musk himself. Most of the book focuses on the exciting early period of SpaceX, from 2002 to 2009, when there were experimental rockets, tropical islands, and even some explosions. You'll learn a lot about SpaceX, Elon Musk, and capture some business lessons along the way. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. I'm David Short. I'm a product manager. I'm David Kopek, I'm an assistant professor of computer science, and we're really happy to be introducing a brand new co-host, our friend, Kevin Hudak. Kevin, can you tell everyone a bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you both for
1: having me on board this season. It's a pleasure to be here, and I definitely have some big and some smart shoes to fill from Eli. Just for some quick background on me, I'm currently living in the Washington, D.C. metro area, but I'm originally from the Hudson Valley in New York. And when I first arrived in D.C., I worked at a prominent polling and public affairs firm but then moved into more of a research and strategy role at a firm that was working at that time with clients and industries ranging from pharmaceutical and life sciences, even to kitchen appliances and consumer packaged goods, advisory and accounting firms, and even some large nonprofits and associations. You know, in the past decade, though, we've really sharpened our expertise in commercial real estate research, and we've been advising office and residential developers across the country, as well as portfolio owners and operators. I've conducted polling around the world and focus groups in at least seven different countries. But I have to say, guys, being on a podcast has to be one of the more unique things I've done. I'm definitely looking forward to it.
0: And we're really excited to have you joining us. It's our great pleasure to have Eric Berger joining us on the show this month. Eric is the senior space editor at Ars Technica. He's a former reporter for the Houston Chronicle. He's a certified meteorologist. But most importantly for us, he's the author of the critically acclaimed book, Liftoff. Elon Musk, and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX, a book that all three of us th- thoroughly enjoyed. Eric, it's an honor to have you on the show.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: So I thought we could start by just talking about you a little bit. So could you tell us a little bit about your background, how you first got into space, how you actually became a certified meteorologist, and how all of this led you to be a journalist and then get on this journey to writing this book?
2: Yeah. So growing up, I was always fascinated by space. I remember writing to NASA like it was a project in first or second grade. And this would have been like 1980, maybe. And uh, it was, I thought it was the most coolest thing in the world. So I wrote a letter to NASA and they sent me back a manila envelope with like 15 or 20 pictures from the Voyager spacecraft of like, you know, Saturn and Jupiter and places like that. I was like, wow. Um, So, you know, I'd always been interested in space. I majored in astronomy in college but then decided that I wanted to, to be a writer. And I ended up doing science writing at the Houston Chronicle, which was a great job. And for a long time, I focused on science and not space. And then in about 2010, I started focusing more on space full time. It was frustrating to me. I think it's, this, is, this is we've really seen this you know emphasis on commercial space over the last decade. And a lot of it has been driven by these very rich investors who come in with their own ideas about space flight the Jeff Bezos's, the Elon Musk's, the Richard Branson's, and, and other people as well. And, and I think that like they come from the, the similar place to uh, that I come from in the sense that we're all kind of disappointed that the NASA of our youth did not go on to settle the universe, right? They, they just sort of built the space station, which was great, and then the space shuttle, and then, and then that was it. So there was no Apollo program for our generation. And so when I saw the commercial space activities in the 2010s that you know the last five to ten years i started getting really excited about that and so i started focusing more and more on space and i left uh, the houston chronicle in 2015 to work for ars technica now at the same time i had also built up this really big following um in houston covering weather uh we get lots of hurricanes here in in texas and uh especially after hurricane ike in 2008 uh, which was a, a very powerful hurricane that pushed a big storm surge into the area I decided if I was going to write about this stuff, I needed to become a meteorologist, and so that's like it has become a hobby now of mine I have a a, a separate website here in Houston called space city weather that that's is <laughs> shockingly shockingly popular but but my first love really is space, and so over the last five years it's become abundantly clear that SpaceX is the most transformative company of of this generation. They're doing you know amazing things across the board, and so I really wanted to understand why they were successful where, where so many other companies had failed. Can you tell us a little bit
3: about the origin for liftoff? Like, how did you first approach Elon?
2: Right. So I told Elon, I asked Elon, you know, I said, you know, I don't think ever anyone has ever really told the origin story of SpaceX. And, you know, Ashley Vance, the author of, of Musk's biography, is a friend of mine. And I thought he did a pretty good job based upon who he had access to six, seven, eight years ago when he was writing that book. But I thought... You know, it would be good to focus entirely on the Falcon One because there was so much drama in that that particular project. I mean, it's just a a simple rocket with a single engine, and it's so basic compared to what they're doing today. But you know, that if that fails, the whole company fails, um, and and there's no SpaceX today. And so I just I said, you know, I think someone ought to tell it. I think I'm probably the person to do it because I understand sort of not just the technical forces that spacex was up against you know and being like a private company of about 100 people trying to build a rocket is a huge technical challenge there was also enormous political challenges and and challenges with the industry and and having covered the commercial space industry for a decade i really kind of understood all of the headwinds that spacex faced you know in those first years and and, and indeed continues to face today and he was familiar with my (laughs) with my reporting He's not a fan of journalists, you, you may have heard. But you know he and I had had a decent relationship. And I, I said, you know I think that it's time to do it. And he agreed. And it was really great because he said I could come in and talk to whoever I wanted to at the factory. And sort of him sending the green light out to other people really freed them up to talk. So all of the early engineers who played key roles in the Falcon 1 you know, really opened up. And so you know, I got a complete story.
1: Eric, I have to say, I really enjoyed the cinematic quality and the way that you presented the ensemble that drove the early days of SpaceX. You know, whether it was Tom Mueller agonizing over the Merlin or even Tim Buzza, who ended up being one of my favorite characters, the vice president of launch. You know, at one point you present Zach Dunn, who started as an intern, heroically standing over the launch four first first stage as it was imploding in the cargo hold of a C-17 right before he was about to dive in. You certainly had some real heroes in that early, the early days of SpaceX. And I'm wondering, how did you decide amongst the full range of employees
2: who you wanted to feature as prominently as you did in this book? Well, that's a great question. I actually didn't really cover space during these years. So you know I knew some of these people, but I certainly didn't know like the whole story and didn't really know who the key people were. So my first step was to go to SpaceX. I said, OK, who's still working at SpaceX? that you think I should talk to. And so they, they, they gave me half a dozen people and I did very long interviews with them at the factory. And then I went out in front of other people, like you mentioned, Tim Buzza, he was the launch director. And it turns out he had thought long and hard about writing his own book about this era and had, had really kept detailed notes um, and shared them with me and his outline. And it was just a fantastic source. And so you know, some of the, the key people came from the fact that they were the ones who kind of had the best memory and, and told the most vivid stories. But there's also like, you know, you want to focus on the people who were there when the, the key decisions were made. And so Zach Dunn, you know, was, I, I loved his story, because he's a guy who came to SpaceX in 2006 and felt that he had missed, like, the most important years of the company. And and he sort of gets in there at the last minute and, and plays this, this just huge role in their success. As you, as you say, he went into the rocket you know, and it was over Hawaii to prevent it from imploding further. But it was just, it's, it was a combination of, of knowing the key people, like Gwen Shotwell obviously played a huge role, Tom Muller, you know, was their key propulsion guy. And so you want to focus on them. But then you also want to find the people who really, until very recently, were anonymous. So like the, as I say, like the Zach Duns or the Florence Lees, those kind of people.
0: So I'm wondering if you can take us back to 2002 when Elon Musk is starting this company. Just how crazy did his vision seem to old timers in the industry and people who knew what he was up against?
2: Well, first of all, I don't think he was talking much about Mars publicly at the time. And so that, that idea, although he very very much was started SpaceX to, to send humans to Mars and told his early employees that, but his vision at in, at the outset was to lower the cost of access to space and provide a commercial outlet to launch satellites, and that was not like an outlandish vision. Lots of other companies had come along to try to do that, to sort of be outsiders to the established industry, and so in that sense, you know, he was trotting a pretty well worn path. The fact that everyone who'd come before him had basically failed. Either had failed to successfully build a rocket, or failed to lower the cost, you know, significantly. Everyone in the industry kind of rolled their eyes and said, "Okay, here comes another one." And I think that was the attitude. As they, you know, I think some people were impressed by the fact that they got a rocket to the launch pad, um, but then when they started blowing them up, everyone just sort of said, "Yep, you know, this this is too hard." You know, everyone everyone talks a good game, but you know, you've got to have you know the billions of dollars and the government backing to make it happen.
1: So, Eric, you just mentioned that it had been an uphill climb for commercial space companies in the past, and, and Elon had quite a unique vision from the start. You know, a number of these early employees were coming from larger, well-established uh, legacy companies with a lot of stability, like the Lockheed's and the McDonnell Douglas's of the world. You know, why were people joining him on that vision? They
2: were absolutely going for less stability than they had. I mean, the the jobs in the space industry, you know, twenty years ago were not at fledgling startups. They were at the Boeings and the Lockheeds and the other defense contractors. and These were very stable positions, pretty well paying. You know most of these people were in Southern California, where a lot of the rocket industry is. you know Gwen Schott was a great example; She had gone to a company called Microcosm and had built up their clientele significantly and she was in the middle of a divorce. She had young kids, she was renovating her condo, she was forty years old, you know why was she leaving a stable job where she was a, a success to take on you know a, a job selling rockets for elon musk who was talking about how he was going to launch people to mars i mean it, it, it was a crazy decision and she told me she really agonized over it for a number of weeks so why did the question then is did you ask is why did she go it's because she re- recognized that the industry was pretty messed up and i think that there was a real hunger For people who wanted to change that, okay. So, to the the state of play, you know, back in 2002, was that you had Boeing and Lockheed building rockets for the U.S. government, and they were very expensive. They were not competitive. They were increasingly uncompetitive with um, Europe and Russia, and even starting to see competition from China at the time. And so, like, it's almost like the rocket industry was following the automobile industry. Sort of, in terms of innovation, sort of you know falling behind, and there were people who believed there was a better way and Elon Musk spoke to that, like he recognized the flaws in the industry and said, "I think there's a better way, and I think I have just enough money to prove to the world that that we can do it and you know he put a hundred million dollars in, which is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money because rockets are expensive, and like there's no money up front, right You, you get paid when you launch someone's satellite to orbit. And that's at the end of the process. It's not at the beginning. And so he, you know, he had this pretty compelling vision, and he was able to sell them on it. And he was there, you know, side by side. And so, you know, you would go talk to people, and really, you know, he hired first Tom Mueller and Chris Thompson, and then they had friends that they knew in the industry, and they helped convince that Elon to hire them. And then they knew people, and and they recommended more people. So a lot of it. Was either a word of mouth or B recruiting on campuses.
0: In the book, it comes across as a key relationship—the relationship between Shotwell and Musk. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that and what their relationship is like. So their relationship is extremely close, and they they really trust one another.
2: And what's interesting to me—and I write about this in the book—but um, so I may use some of the same words. But you know, he is is Elon is kind of brash. Awkward, nerdy. I mean, if you've seen him speak, you know what I'm talking about, but you know, clearly has this, this really different aura. Um, and he said on Saturday Night Live, I think he was on the spectrum, right? So he's, he's a different person. She is very smooth. Everyone, everyone loves her. She doesn't really rub people the wrong way. She's a high school cheerleader, right? So she's very bright, very well dressed, and knows how to talk to U.S. generals in the military. You know, important customers. She knows how to talk to NASA, and so they complement each other really well because you know he's sort of very hardcore nerd and engineering and kind of finances, and she's very good at sort of the business side of things. But what's really interesting is like sort of beneath their different exteriors, on the inside, they're both like hard as nails and both wanting to just sort of disrupt the existing industry and 20 years later man they're still going at a hammer and tongs it's just really impressive that they've been able to sustain that and i think they fed off each other and and certainly their success so eric this is a podcast about business books and business in general and
1: one very important thing is talent attraction and acquisition you know particularly for early spacex You know, more and more companies today are realizing they need to have an interview process and a recruitment process that sets themselves apart, you know, and gets the top talent through the door. You know, we saw in your book that Zach Dunn had interviewed first at Blue Horizon. He spoke with a more impersonal recruiter and was dismissed pretty quickly. When he went to SpaceX, he interviewed with Tom Mueller at the very start, who almost passed as well. It wasn't until Dunn stopped the call and mentioned that this was really his dream, his life's dream. And that he would dedicate himself to it, that Mueller really had a second thought and he told Dunn to come down to the range for his summer internship right there on the spot. You know, we also heard about Elon personally interviewing or, or meeting with, I think it was the first 3,000 employees just to ensure the proper fit and get the right people. And I'm wondering with early SpaceX, how did they solve that
2: talent puzzle? Elon clearly set the tone for that. I mean, he recognized he needed a team of quality people and he invested. Know, a lot of time and effort into that and still does today i mean most engineers who get hired at spacex you know he will he will interview them so it's it's pretty it's interesting talking to the different people because i always would ask them you know how did you you know how did you come to work at spacex and, and what was your interview with elon like and you know he does this thing where he asked them he asked them riddles basically engineering problems that is not you know, it's not what you have learned by rote, like or in an engineering class, but it, it sort of seeks to test how you think and if you have an agile, agile mind and, and are good at creative problem solving. And so he he knew what he wanted in engineers, right? He he wanted people who were gonna work hard. He wanted people who were passionate, which is something obviously Zach Dunn showed in that internship interview. And he wanted he wanted people who were gonna commit themselves fully. It was interesting, you know, one of the people I spent a lot of time talking to was Hans Konigsman, who was the original basically computer avionics guy. And he said they would go back and forth on on engineers and and usually Elon was right ultimately on on the people they should hire. So there were a lot of great
3: vignettes and stories that were told. Uh, we, we sort of already brought up the, the C-17 flight and, you know, there's, there's a couple of these others. Was there like a, a favorite for you among the, you know, chapters and stories that you told of, of all those early experiences? <laughs>
2: I, I have so many. It was, it was, that was the fun part of writing the book is just hearing all the stories, but probably my favorite one was what Tim Buzz told me. It was near the end of 2005 and they were racing to get all of their stuff that they needed for their first launch attempt to Kwajalein, which was this island, you know, far out in the Pacific Ocean. They'd kind of been kicked out there, and, and it was kind of their last chance place to launch from, and they were trying to go fast. And so it was, an, it was basically an Army base. It was an Army range, and, and they didn't have to deal with the Air Force, and so they liked that. But the, the quickest way to get stuff shipped out there was by you know through the Army transportation system. Because if you sent something by boat, it was 28 days from Los Angeles to, to Kwajalein. And so you could get it shipped by air by the army, you know, within a matter of days. And, and, and how quickly it got there was, was depending upon this code that you used, you know, with the logistics officer. And there were different levels of the code. And, and Buzza told me that they, they just started using the highest priority code, which was like for war material, um, like, you know, urgently needed in Afghanistan or wherever. And, and they were using that code to ship it to <laughs> their rocket parts to, to Kwajalein. And he said that, you know, basically, they were trying to do this attempt on the 20th of December. And so on the last it's really logistic shipment before the Christmas holiday to Kwajalein, it was like filled with SpaceX stuff. And so it bumped all of the, the Christmas trees, the Christmas hams, the Christmas presents for the Army families in Kwajalein. And so he he just recounted sort of going to the grocery stores in the days after this and dealing with the Army moms who knew that. All of their Christmas stuff had been bumped by by the SpaceX employees, and so he told, me, he told me they used that logistics code a little bit less after after that because obviously they had abused it. He was the literal Grinch.
0: <laughs> yes, they were the Grinch. They were the Grinch who stole Christmas. So I want to talk about a particular vignette that I really loved, which was when Zach Dunn went inside the Falcon rocket, inside the C seventeen. And it seemed like a legitimately very dangerous moment. You mentioned in the book that maybe even the you know the whole plane could have had issues as a result. How dangerous was that moment? Could you just describe it for our audience a little bit? And could Zach actually have died doing that? Well, I think I think they all could have died, you know, at that moment.
2: So here the, the scene is that they're they're in such a rush. They're the company's running out of money. And so for the first time, they're actually flying. The first stage of the Falcon One rocket out to Kwajalein, instead of they didn't have 28 days, and so they were shipping it in in a C-17, and about 20 of the employees flew along with the rocket's first stage. It wasn't fueled. The pilots didn't know that, and so like so, what happened is as they're descending into the first leg of the the journey, Honolulu, the rocket starts popping, and it's basically the pressure inside the rocket, the differential is greater as the the C-17 descends, the pressure in the, the cabin or the, the, the hangar where the the cargo bay, where the where the rocket is, starts going up, and and so there's, there's less pressure inside the rocket. There's not time for it to equalize, and so the rocket starts imploding. The concern, well, first of all, the pilots didn't know if there was fuel in it. They were wor- worried about it was going to explode, and they're like, do we need to push it out the back? And the SpaceX engineers are like, no, 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 we don't. But the problem is, like, you know, a rocket is always designed to be at a higher pressure than its surroundings because these are, they're, they're thin walls because you're always worried about mass, um, these, these fuel tanks. But, but what happened was because the pressure inside the rocket was lower, it started imploding. And theoretically, if the pressure had changed really quickly, the other way, the rocket could have sort of exploded outward. And so you could have had a shrapnel situation. I don't know how, how great of a chance that was, but certainly the, the risk for Zach Dunn himself was very high because they decided that the best thing they could do was really try to equalize the pressure more quickly. And so they needed to open up valves to get air inside the rocket um, to equalize the pressure between the the interior of the rocket and the the aircraft area where it was. And, And so he actually had to crawl in between the first and second stages to access that valve as the rocket was imploding. So yeah, for him, it was quite dangerous.
0: I'm wondering if you can talk to kind of the business side of liftoff. What were the most important business lessons that readers take away from the book? You know, I think what I
2: one of the things I tried to do with the book was really answer the question of why did SpaceX succeed with this plan to lower the cost of access to space when half a dozen other companies and I and I talk about a lot of them, you know, why they had failed and it, and it really the answer to that really started with Elon and his vision for the company. You know, he he came into an industry that was pretty well established in its ways, and came from Silicon Valley and imported some of that, like the really long work days, um, and the and the you know t- willingness to try crazy ideas or new new ways to solve old problems. You know, he put this emphasis on hiring and acquiring the best the best talent he could, and then was was really good at motivating them. And then you know he put a real premium on moving as fast as possible. And this, in the space industry, where there was kind of this paralysis that, you know, by 2003, there'd been two space shuttle accidents. So it was like, the space industry was super careful. Everyone took, was really moved slowly. There was lots of paperwork, lots of process. And he was always looking, Elon Musk was always looking to break up processes and and go faster. And that was a big change. And, And by going faster, you save money. And so the book really sort of seeks to answer that question of of why they were successful and ultimately became a successful business. And and it was really because of of Elon and his mindset. And since SpaceX has come along and done what they've done, there have been literally like dozens and dozens of startup rocket
0: companies who have come in behind SpaceX and are trying to do similar things. That makes total sense. I'm wondering if there was ever a point where Elon actually lost his faith? Like, was there, a, you mentioned a bit about his disappointments after, for example, the third launch, but I'm wondering if there was a point where it really felt like he was going to give up.
2: I think he always felt like the odds were against him succeeding. You know, he, I think at one point he said when he founded the company, he thought there was about a 10% chance of success. So, you know, I, I think he always had in his mind the possibility. Perhaps even likelihood of failure, but yeah, he started to lose the faith after the second, and especially the third failure, because in the third failure, you know they started going backward, the rocket failed you know just a couple minutes into the flight, whereas this flight before it had, had very nearly made it to orbit, and it, that failure came in just this this awful summer for him, where he was going through a divorce, and Tesla was on the rocks financially and then he was getting you know dragged dragged through the press and you know his wife was saying his ex-wife was saying all these things about him and he was you know completely broke so he didn't have a house to sleep in so i think that he was down about perhaps the prospects of SpaceX but that was by no means the only thing he had to worry about in the summer of 2008 he had a lot of things on his mind and so i think that that ultimately like that was one potential lifeline for him at that time. And so while that the, it the was a very dark time, there was still the possibility that SpaceX might succeed. And so that's why he ultimately went to his team and said, okay, we've got just a little bit of money left. Let's let's go for it.
3: So you talk a lot about the like extremely intense hours that everyone was working, the sort of crazy experience of being out on the islands. Um, and in sort of the... The epilogue, I think it is. You you kind of uh, mentioned that some people like you know struggled, but like it, you, you seem to indicate that like most of them did feel like it was worth it. Right, it was such an important thing. I was just curious: was there anyone who was just like really beaten down by SpaceX? Like, was there anyone who felt like it wasn't worth it? Or did did everyone say like even though these were the hardest years of my life, you know, it was worth it because of what we ultimately accomplished?
2: Well, I think there were a, a number of young engineers who came into SpaceX and got washed out pretty quickly. So for them, I would say, you know, they, they, they would say it was not worth it. But for those who persisted through the Falcon one program, you know, it ultimately was, you know, it was Zach. I think it was eyes wide open, right? I had a, I had a long conversation with Zach Dunn about this, you know, talking about, you know, man, you know, you worked for like 15 years for SpaceX and like, you know, worked super long days, super high pressure. I mean, working for Elon Musk is not easy. And, you know, and he said, yeah, I gave that company the best years of my life, right? When his twenties and most of his thirties and and worked as hard as he could and, and put everything he had into the company. And he's like, it was, he said it was a trade. Like I did that. It was eyes wide open. And I knew what I was getting in return. I was getting a chance to make this huge difference that I would never have otherwise had and that that was really one of the key differences I think between SpaceX and a lot of the other big aerospace companies you know they were they were a couple hundred people building a rocket ultimately whereas you know if you'd gone to a Lockheed you would have been like a team of thousands and maybe never even touched the hardware whereas at SpaceX you know you were you were building things you were seeing the fruits of your labors Things were blowing up, and you were solving problems. It was just very much hands-on, and and you could see you could see how you were making you personally were making a difference, and so you worked harder, but the, it was more fulfilling. And you know they were all getting options like like private stock in the company, so you know the early employees came out of that super well off. Um, you know, Bob Reagan, the machinist, told me this funny story I put in the book, you know, how he spent the summer of 2007 busting his ass to try to complete refurbishment of a new factory, their their factory now on one rocket road in Hawthorne, California. They acquired that facility in 2007. It was a Fort Boeing building. It was Bob Reagan's job to basically outfit it to become a rocket factory. And he said he had, Elon gave him like five months, and so he just completely... Worked his tail off. And he said afterward, he was, you know, he made it. He made the deadline that Elon set, which was like for September, October of, of 2007, something like that. And he said that he was so disappointed because, you know, his reward for that at the end of that was 10,000 shares in SpaceX. And, you know, he thought that was pretty worth it. And then he, he gives me this really rolling laughter and says, I didn't know it was going at $212 a share. You know, so, I mean, that's the kind of thing like, you know, they had that in their back pocket too. And and Tim Buzzett told me a a revealing, you know, anecdote that like, you know, he, he, he was one of the older people and he had young kids when he started at SpaceX. I mean, you know, so you end up as when you're working there, your wife is watching the kids all the time because you're, you're home, you know, maybe a day on the weekend or, you know, but you're, you're working early morning to late at night. And he recalled being out basically on Quadraline the night before their fourth launch, their make or break it mission, and sort of just feeling like they had to succeed or he would have let his family down because he told them, you know, he'd, I'm sure he'd had long discussions about his wife. He was like, look, if this takes off, financially, we're going to be set. And of course, that was, again, because they all had these stakes, personal and financial in the company. So, Eric, we've talked about
1: what some of the talent might have changed or if they had any regrets about working those long hours and grinding, but I'm wondering about Elon himself. And um, it's a fun question. I'm gonna ask you to put your Elon hat on essentially. And when you think about that, if you put yourself in Elon's shoes right now, what's one thing that you think he, or even Eric Berger would have changed about SpaceX's early story, if anything? You know, obviously not leaving launch one on the pad overnight, monitoring slush, uh, addressing that slight extra thrust for launch three between the first stage and second stage, those are the the clear ones. But looking at the big picture, at the from the business sense, would it be ensuring better support and wellness for talent? Would it be structuring deals differently, incorporating Bulet Altan's Turkish goulash even earlier? What <laughs> what would what would you say is one thing that either he or you would have changed in the early days, you know, to to enhance the company?
2: You know, that's a great question. I, I hesitate to try to try to speak for Elon on that. I think two of the things that he might have changed are when they were first starting out building that first rocket, you know, we talked about how like there was so much process and so much paperwork in this base industry, he was trying to rebel completely against that. I think he would have so he went like in the complete opposite direction where there's like almost, you know, virtually no paperwork or process. I think he would have started with a little bit more paperwork and process for that first launch, because they certainly made some significant changes. After that first mission, and then the other thing is, I think he had, to, he had to really spend a lot of time understanding how to work with the. US Air Force, which buys the majority of launch contracts in this country as well as NASA. you know he had really no experience with those two you know those two agencies, and they were they're the most important customers for rocket launches in the country.:
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting that you mentioned the Air Force too, because one thing I took away was the Air Force giveth and the Air Force taketh. And you had the example of what happened at Vandenberg, followed by those C-17 pilots who were so committed to, you know, getting the, uh, you know, the rocket first stage and the fourth launch to Hawaii. Uh, So I thought that was interesting about relations with the Air Force. But thank you for the answer.
2: Yeah, that C-17, you know, that was, that was, again, you know, uh, brought in, it was brought in by a guy named Brian Beldy. And that was, you know, he was, he was actually one of the earliest hires in his, his job was actually to interface with the Air Force when they were trying to launch from trying to launch from Vandenberg, and he sort of said that they got really lucky with like getting that C seventeen transport. He said that usually that's you have to line that up months in advance, and they were like calling and got it within days.
0: You touch on Blue Origin just a little bit in the book. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the relationship between Musk and Bezos was like back in these early days, back from 2002 to 2009 they might have interacted, if at all, and uh, how competitive it was.
2: So they had one famous meeting um, where they kind of had lunch or dinner together, um, and they shared some rocket ideas. And there's this picture of them out there floating on the internet. I'm sure people can find it. Where basically, Bezos came to Musk, and, and they talked about some of his ideas, and Elon said, no, 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 don't do that. We tried that, and it didn't work. Um, and, and Bezos went ahead and tried it anyway. Yeah, you know, I think that neither of them had really accomplished much in the 2000s in the space industry and so like they maybe had respect you know for one another as, as tech entrepreneurs but i think probably both of them didn't think a whole lot of each other you know it's interesting to me that they both have very similar ideas in terms of they see humanity necessarily you know, spreading to the stars, spreading to live on other places in the solar system. And now, Elon wants to go to Mars, and and Bezos is much more of a, a, a building colonies or settlements, basically in space. These things called O'Neill cylinders. But they both sort of believe that you know, for humans to reach their destiny, it really does involve spreading out beyond planet Earth. And they both have, you know, they both came to the same conclusion that the 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 first necessary step to that is building large orbital reusable rockets and so that's what they've both done spacex has been fantastically more successful than blue origin has at that some of that is because elon was basically gung-ho from the start and bezos started blue origin as much more of a think tank in its earliest years but a, a lot of it too i think you have to attribute to elon has just proved to be you know, kind of the better rocket scientist, and at least in terms of the rocket business, much more hard charging than Jeff Bezos has. He's, Bezos has been a lot more hands-off with his rocket company than Elon has. Elon has definitely put, you know, his skin in the game in terms of time and money and effort. You know, You know, at the time where Bezos is getting pilloried for buying a half a billion dollar yacht, you know, Musk is living in a $50,000 house in South Texas to try to get his Starship project moving along. And you know, to answer your question of, of what they think about each other now, you know I can't really speak about what Bezos thinks of musk, although I, I I do think I do know for a fact that he's like insanely jealous of the federal contracts that SpaceX has, both from nasa and and the u s Air Force for launches. It's no question like he has told his executives to go out and get Blue Orge and similar kinds of contracts. I think musk is almost sort of amused, I think, at the lack of success that Bezos has had. You know, when I talked to him and I asked him about Bezos, he just was pretty dismissive of of Bezos as an engineer as a, as an aerospace engineer. And kind of it's probably I, I know he and Ingwen and, and Shat will sort of see all of the money that Jeff Bezos has pumped into Blue Origin and the amount of return he's gotten out of it. And they sort of scratch their heads and say, where's all that money going? Because it's it's just so has spent a lot of money for a relatively low return.
1: Yeah, and I think it's even interesting, Eric, too, you're mentioning sort of uh, really r- rolling your sleeves up and some of the vignettes you produced in the book from your subjects like Shotwell uh, watching the uh, launch four from the bathroom in a hotel, Elon sort of rolling up his sleeves, wearing his Christmas cocktail suit and shoes to uh, slather one of the rockets in epoxy. And I, I really appreciated t- sort of the stories behind what I thought would otherwise be glamorous, unreachable people. And I think going back to talent again, you know, getting on the ground floor with talent, being on site is super important. And I thought it was impressive that Elon, by the end, said, "I wish I had spent more time on Omelik Island," uh, even though he did. Seems like it's, he spent a lot of
2: time there. He was not there for the second, third, and fourth launches. So he spent some time on Omelik, especially early on, but but later on like especially for flight 3 and 4 he was so tied up with tesla he really couldn't leave california for you know for the days that it would take to get out there and back even on a private aircraft but you know he was still very much involved in all of the all of the meetings and stuff and and you know, even back then they would do sort of these virtual calls between people on Amalek, people on quadrellin and then back with back with los angeles but yeah i mean he was in that's that's one of the things that that really impresses me about elon is He has this enormous work ethic, like it's his energy and sort of effort that he puts into his companies, it just seems sort of boundless. And it's, it's, for me, spending a, a little bit of time around him, it's kind of exhausting. Like, I don't know how people keep up with him because like, man, it's always, how do we go faster and how do we do it for less money and can we find a way to do it better? And and it's like every day he's asking those questions and making those demands of his people, and it's just it's it's man, you got to go pretty hard to, to keep up with it. And I think that that's you know that's kind of another important business lesson to draw from this. I didn't know Elon Musk in two thousand two, but I don't think he was a whole lot different than he is today. And you know, if you look at SpaceX, it's it's had this fantastic arc from being a company. It was absolutely nothing and nobody, nobody respected or knew it in the space industry 20 years ago. 10 years ago, they were sort of on the cusp of launching their first big rocket, the Falcon 9, but everyone kind of assumed they would fail. And even five years ago, they were like still behind like Boeing and United Launch Alliance and Lockheed. They were sort of like Yeah, they were doing some things, but they really maybe they weren't going to make it. And now, today, like they are without a doubt the world's premier space company. Like they have come to dominate the global launch industry and they're just taking business away from all of these established companies. So, like, they have gone from being David to Goliath, but you know, somehow Elon has managed to maintain that founder's mentality. It's like, yeah, they may be Goliath today, but they're still seeking to disrupt the industry and like still want it just as badly. Like he hasn't lost that founder's mentality, and his people have not Like they still have it, and so it's crazy. Like you know, they're no longer disrupting the competition so much as like themselves because they have the world's best, lowest cost reusable rockets of Falcon Nine, but they're working every day to make it obsolete with Starship. It's kind of amazing that they sort of that he's managed to remain that hungry for so long. And you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about Jeff Bezos, and you know, he has really lost that founder's mentality with Blue Origin. Blue Origin has become a much more of a traditional space company than a disruptive space company. I think that's one of the reasons why they haven't really made significant strides like SpaceX has.
0: I'm wondering if there's anything that we've missed, something that we should have asked you about Liftoff, something that you'd like our listeners to know about Liftoff. Yeah,
2: I think I think the kind of the most important thing is that the book isn't all about Elon Musk. It really, the goal was to tell the story of the company, and obviously he's integral to that because he founded it, he provided the funding, he provided the vision, and he was there, you know, on a day to day basis. But it's really as much about like the other people who were there and all of the things that they had to go through to to make a success. And so, yeah, I really tried to make it read more like a thriller than like uh, anything else. And I, and I tried to write it not for like, because I, I definitely have people in the space industry who follow me who are like the hardcore space nerds, but I really tried to write it for like the, a more general audience who might be interested in space, but it's not like they're all consuming passion. Um, and so it's more of a, it's, it is more of like a business book in that sense. It's much more general than, than sort of like a pure science book.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of great business lessons in it. And I think it does also come across as a thriller. I mean, I w- it was definitely a page turner for me. I'm wondering how our listeners can follow you on social media. How can they keep up with you? Uh, I'm most active on Twitter as SciGuySpace. Um, and then I write all the time for Ars Technica, the website. Well, we'll definitely put links to that in our show notes. And we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it, guys. All right. It was great having Eric on the show. Next month, we're going to be reading Measure What Matters by John Doerr. David, this was your pick. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah.
3: Measure What Matters is really a a modern business classic written by John Doerr. He's a a venture capitalist and has been involved in a lot of really successful companies, but it's really about the implementation of objectives and key results or, or OKRs. So he saw this first at Intel where it was invented and then implemented it through a number of other companies, including Google. So the book gives a lot of, you know, private stories and history of implementing OKRs, as well as like tactical advice on how you might go about doing it. So I'm, I'm really excited to read it. Awesome. And let's talk about how our listeners can get in touch with us. You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short.
1: And this is Kevin. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Hudak's Basement. That's H-U-D-A-K.
0: And I'm at Dave Kopech on Twitter. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. We want to thank Eric Berger again for joining us. We're so excited, Kevin, to have you on this season. Looking forward to a whole season of episodes with you. And we want to remind everybody not to forget to subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice. Hit that follow button, hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next month.